Speaking Logically is brought to you by ETF Logic, the leading provider of analytics and portfolio analysis tools for financial advisors. No information within this should be considered trading or investment advice. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Speaking Logically. My name is Scott McKenna. And I'm Emil Tarazi. And today we are joined by Chris Hempstead, who's the head of institutional business development at Index IQ. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks. How are you today? Excellent. Got to say, we're really excited to have you on the podcast. Obviously, you're a pretty well-known name in the ETF issuer space, right? But for some of the advisors who are listening that might not know about you, uh, why don't you give us a little bit of background? Thanks. Uh, Yeah, I mean... Critically, I probably uh, made a name for saying yes to everything. So that's probably, you know, willingly why some of my colleagues in the industry, um, you know, we've, we've done a lot together over the years. Uh, you know, I started out as a trader, a uh, liquidity provider, a market maker, um, like many, you know, in the ETF industry. And, um, you know, as automation and um, technology advancements in the market, um, you know, continue to evolve, uh, the role of an actual trader changed significantly and probably adversely for someone in, in our skill set back in the early days of, of ETF trading. Uh, however, it opened up a massive opportunity um, for education and, and sales in a consultation uh, or consultative kind of way um, as it relates to ETFs and trading of ETF implementation, all of these things, uh, there's still there's still so much, um, you know, that needs to be taught and understood on the consumer level uh, with respect to ETFs and uh, trading is only one part of that. Um, but, uh, but that's sort of where I've evolved into, um, you know, from origination of ETFs, from seeking lead market making, um, secondary market making, and uh, and sales of ETFs uh, themselves, um, it, it everything and every part of that experience is revolved around uh, consultation, education, and getting people comfortable with the process. Yeah, couldn't agree anymore. I mean, education is so so important. It's a big part of what we do here at ETF Logic. You know, with this podcast, we're trying to educate advisors based on experiences that ETF issuers, other advisors, model providers. You know, anyone within the ETF space has had. And then also our CE webinars. Chris, I know you've been on those before. You know, that's a big part of what, what we're trying to do to, to help educate advisors about ETFs. And uh, so talking about education, why don't we dive a little bit deeper and talk a little bit about ETFs and, and use this episode almost as like a level two crash course on ETFs. Right, Emil? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's touched on all the different sort of aspects of how ETFs are made. And, you know, we, we usually say how the sausage is made. Right, we'd, right. We'd like to kind of do a little light walkthrough of those different stages. So ideas for ETFs obviously start with the ETF issuers. And in your former role, you were on a capital markets desk at you know, one of the big banks. Let's talk a little bit about how that process starts. How do you go from issuer coming to you and then, uh, you know, what's sort of the role of a capital markets desk 
um, how do you help in, in the process of getting ETFs out there and, and to a wider audience? Well, yeah, I mean, it's important to know, you know, how they came to be and, and then walk the line as to how they've, how they've evolved and, and progressed. If you think about what early ETFs did for, for investors, they provided a tax efficient, a daily liquid, a liquidity vehicle on exchange that was not available prior to ETFs in the U.S. Index-based products with traditionally mutual funds were now in this other wrapper that people could access, you know, from their trading account. And, you know, so most popular, obviously, FPY and the S&P 500, the sector spiders and the QQQ and NASDAQ 100, you know, a lot of those uh, were right behind it, the Russell products. So familiar indices, you know, was was number one. That's the big pro. That's the, the good side of the, of the ledger. It's something that our investors and advisors were familiar with um, in terms of the index. The new vehicle, which is the con, is the ETF, which is something that they were not familiar with. So a couple of things needed to happen. We needed to structure a product that tracked an index accurately, efficiently, at a competitive cost, and one that uh, would be in some kind of a structure, in this case, administrative fund, that would be simple enough for investors and their advisors to understand how to use them efficiently. And remember, with mutual funds, you know, you, you buy a new mutual fund, you get that. You know, there's load fees and all of this, you know, that people can talk about in the front or the back end, certain structures. But now with an ETF, what people needed to get most comfortable with was pricing of ETFs. You're at the mercy of the efficiency of the secondary market in a set, right? So the best price you can get when you're buying an ETF is the lowest price that someone's willing to sell and may not be net asset value. Maybe net asset value plus some, you know, deviation in dips or pennies. But there are also times where you may be able to buy an ETF below that. So it goes both ways. Again, this is what market is. You know, market makers and liquidity providers compete vigorously to provide competitive execution in ETFs to arbitrage mechanisms. We won't go too far into that. But uh, but again, I think that the, the, the tax efficiency and the cost structure of ETFs in the early days in the early days were just enough to get things moving into a much bigger environment, which we're in today. So when issuers come to you, like, you know, I know you're at an issuer now, but in your previous role, when issuers came to you, what were some of the major pain points? Like, what were their challenges in, in getting out? Well, you know, it's interesting to ask because generally over the, over the course of, you know, my career, the original pain points were, oh, we need seed capital. We need someone to put, you know, whatever it was, two and a half million or five million bucks into the ETF to get the first units of ETF pairs created, right, so that it would meet the listing standards on the New York Stock Exchange. So oftentimes that would be, you know, somewhere between two and a half million and five million dollars. And, and there weren't, um, you know, there's not a long list of participants that are equipped or, or have the ability to provide capital. There were a handful. And, uh, and we would do it. To build relationships with issuers, their asset managers, you know, after all, and you know, we have a service that we can provide to become valued partners of them and 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 build franchise opportunities for our business. So that was one of the early challenges. But over time, seed capital became easier to you know to secure. 
both internally at the issuer level and externally with their partners. So that became less of a challenge. And then the other challenge that that remained and persisted for some time was uh, was having a lead market maker who would who would be out there on the secondary market, let's just say the, you know, the ARCA or NASDAQ or, you know, or BATS or CBOE, the, they would be out there bidding and offering competitively at good prices, you know, real nice, not a lot of premium and discount, ample liquidity for advisors and their clients to have on the secondary market. With more and more products coming to market, you know, there were, there's 2,300 plus products now. And, and at one point, it just seemed like there were another 20 ETFs a day. It felt like they were coming out. And so liquidity providers and market makers were like, hey, look, I'll make part of anything. But if it's not trading every day, I really can't take the time to invest in technology and the staff to support products that don't trade. So the issuers of ETF were challenged with incentivizing makers to make a market because it became a chicken or the egg problem, right? Where... Well, if there's no really good market maker out there in my product, I'm never going to be able to convince an advisor or the clients to buy or sell my product because the the the, the, the quality of the markets wasn't wasn't good enough. So, um, again, you know, I bring that up as that there was a period of time where there were challenges in finding really willing participants in the lead market making arena and something to issuers need to have. I don't think we've ever hit a breaking point in the ETF industry. I don't think we've ever gotten to a point where we couldn't find one. Everyone always seemed to find one, but it did feel like there was a period of time where, you know, the, the phones were ringing and it was like a little bit of a hop data, like who was going to pick up and raise their hand and say, to do it. <laughs> we did a lot of that <laughs> to the pain of a lot of my colleagues over the years who had to pick up my guesses. The other thing is issuers would come to us and say, hey, look, you have some seed capital capabilities. You have some lead market-making capabilities. We would love for you to um, to be a partner. Um, and here's our idea. And this is when we would take out our notebooks. And we, as a, as a market maker, as a liquidity provider, we're looking for a few things. Other than the relationship aspect of it, the product itself, we're looking for what are the costs with being able to maintain a market in this product? What are the costs? to create it and redeem it. You know, how liquid is this going to be? Am I going to be able to make a market five basis points wide? Or is this product by design going to have to be 2% wide? You know, so what are you putting into it? And so they would usually come in and mistakenly treat us like clients, which we're not. Uh, and they'd say, we have an idea for an ETF that's going to blow away, you know, the S&P 500 products. You know, we're going to be actively managed or we're going to be, uh, you know, monthly or weekly rebalancing passively you can ever consider that and we have we're going to use all kinds of exotic instruments in it and we our back test says we're going to be great and and they look at us like we're going to be investors we're not we're just market makers we're just arbitrageurs we say look we don't care what you put in your product but if you want us to be able to make a nice it spread on exchange where the bid and the offer the spread of the, of where people can buy and sell is is narrow enough to give them comfort then we need to have comfort that we can actually you know manage the product in that way because we're the ones that are actually manufacturing when we're creating etfs and destroying the shares when we're redeeming ETFs. so we need to be able to deliver to you the securities when we're, when we're manufacturing the shares and be able to sell the securities you're giving to us when we're redeeming 
very much. So over the years, you know, they would learn, if you learn, don't build a product that's really hard to assemble on the inside out. Build a product that can be supported efficiently and regularly in the secondary market by these independent market participants, which are liquidity providers and market who are acting independently. And so we've seen great advancement there. I mean, so much so that someone would come to us and say, well, this is the portfolio that we're working with. This is the index that we're based off, what do you think? And, and, you know, oftentimes we would do analysis of that index and say, well, there's six or seven names in this index that are extremely elected, extremely costly to trade, very high sell rates at the DC. You know, these are things that are probably going to become pain points for you. Are they that important to have in your product? Because if they're not, you may want to consider taking them out. And by taking them out, you know, you might see there's uh, with an ability to make a tight market and to make a, a, a deeper market, if you will. Um, those are just some loose examples of, of things. But I think to sum it up, issuers, by and large, are very sensitive to what they put into an ETF because they want to maximize performance and alpha generation. And they also want to minimize complexity and inefficiency to the liquidity providers and market. So they have to they have to carefully balance where they're going to get the most performance and they're going to get the highest amount of secondary market liquidity and efficiency. That's an excellent, very thorough description, Chris. Really appreciate that. So moving on, you know, now that you're on the other side at an ETF issuer, what are some of the things that you do at Index IQ and your team does to overcome some of those challenges when it comes down to distribution? Yeah, I mean, that's the other, you know, remember, I, I kind of alluded to the fact that, you know, managers would come to, you know, to the market participants and, and be very excited about a product. And, you know, sometimes we look at each other and they think we're going to buy that. Like, we really, we're not investors, right? Um, now I'm on the other side of the other side of the table. And, you know, distribution is a huge part of, of the success of an ETF. I mean, we would constantly ask, who is this market? You know, who are you targeting? You know, it's not our job to have to sell, but who are you targeting with this product? And do you have some level of expectancy that you're going to be successful in raising assets. And we do that because we don't like to see funds close down. There's no big deal if a fund closes down. Everyone gets their money back. You know, but fund, an ETF closing is is a liquidation process. They'll just stop trading. The fund will liquidate the assets and return the money to the shareholders. So it's not a uh, doomsday scenario for investors. Maybe It may be a little bit up. They're going to be a cat. And they have to redeploy it into another product, but they'll get their money. Um, but at any rate, distribution is, is incredibly important in having a sound distribution plan. So, you know, what are you selling? I, in particular, right now, I'm, I'm trying to sell liquid all ETFs into an institutional channel. So, there's a number of challenges, as you can imagine. You know, first of all, are institutions, you know, using liquid all ETFs? Yes or no? If they are, great probably an easier access point to have a conversation, but many are familiar with them, but they're not using them. So there's a very high level to getting the knowledge where it needs to be for each that you may be, you know, talking about at an institutional level in, in distribution. But it could involve the clients, it could involve their consultants. You know, there's a number of things that come into play. So the other part is the retail audience. You know, do you have a, a good captive retail distribution plan? Are you going to be able to get approved on some of the major platforms like UBS or Morgan Stanley or, or, or Wells Fargo or, you know, Bank of America? You know, it's not 
so easy where you just call them up and ask them to put the product on the platform and it can be sold. It doesn't work that way. There, there are a number of things that need to be done. There's due diligence that needs to be done and research. So, so issuers need to be thinking about that before they bring a product to market and be realistic in, in what their day one, month one, and year one, or even years one through three distribution channels look like. Because they might look a lot different than, than the channels will look after the three-year your track record, which oftentimes opens up more opportunity. The other the other hurdle is asset. One of the biggest um, one of the biggest headwinds, one of the biggest you know pieces of, of negative you know return in a sense for ETF sales is oh there's not enough in the ETF. You know there's some asset level that people like to see. So oh it only has a hundred million dollars in it, or only has fifty million dollars in it. I can't use that ETF. It's just not true. And so what all that does, you know, is it requires an extra conversation to explain that the AUM in an ETF is really an insignificant measure of its ability to give you some level of performance that it's designed to do. Now, there are some things that have happened in the ETF world where maybe they've been out for several years and there's only one unit or there's only the minimal number of shares allowed outstanding in the ETF. And we're really talking about it has a few hundred thousand dollars in it. The odds of that being owned by an individual investor, you know, and, and there being some concern there that you can't deem it or sell it, it's just so low. It's almost not, it's not, you know, most ETFs that have, once they hit the $25 million mark or once they hit a certain number of unique owners and, and, and units out, shares outstanding, they're pretty much a going concern at that point. And then what you need to be thinking about is, is what what's the capacity of the ETF? How much can an ETF in the strategy handle? Could you put $100 million to work in a day or a week and not have it be disrupted to the underlying asset class? Um, certainly in the S&P 500, you could probably throw you know several billion dollars a fund that tracks S&P 500 stocks and not really disrupt the market in any way, shape, or form. That being said, you know if you have if you're looking at a microcap ETF or a specialized microcap ETF with a lot of less liquid stock in it, you may not want to invest a hundred million or a billion dollars in a single day because you will have impact in the market. It could have adverse um, consequences to your performance. So these are all things that that should be thought about when you're thinking about product design, when you're thinking about distribution in particular. Who is your audience? How big are they? And you know, when we talk to clients about an ETF, not so much. It's not always about also how big your order is, but what is important. To you, when do you need to have this money? In? Do you need to have this done right this second? Your time in the market, or is this sort of something that you're looking to work into your portfolio and doesn't have to be done with an immediate an immediate trade. These are all ingredients that lead to the perfect answer, right? But you can't just take one soundbite, one piece of those, you know, of all of those ingredients and have the right answer for your client or for the advisor. You really need to ask a series of questions. You know, what are you looking to achieve? How much? When? How long are you going to be in it? That's another one. If you're going to buy, you know, uh, a security and you're only going to be in it for a day or two, you know, you might want to look to the most liquid or the most actively traded index product. 
because the idea of using something that's a little more esoteric or going with a boutique manager who provides alpha over time, the you know the, the, the thought of them being able to provide that out in two days, you know, or that outperformance in two days is also probably not realistic. So again, these are all questions that sort of need to be asked before people like us, you know, go back with sound recommendation on how to move on. Yeah, Chris, actually, you touched on something that's interesting to me. You mentioned the word uh, liquid alts. For I'd like to know more about that product, especially like kind of what's the pitch when you go and you, you go to advisors mm-hmm. and how does it fit in your portfolio? And maybe just for a little background, maybe you can define it for our audience. Yeah, well, I mean, look, there's a, there's a, there's a bunch of products. I mean, the one we talk about the most with, with respect to liquid alts would probably be QAI, which is a, which is a multi-strat uh, macro tracker, right? And it, it, it encompasses long, short, global equity, um, hedge fixed income. Uh, you know, there's a number of hedge fund-like strategies that, that sit within the ETF. It uses other ETFs to achieve those hedge fund strategy outcomes. Look, if you were a fund to fund manager, or if you were a fund to fund client, if you will, and you look and you have several hedge funds, your return is going to look similar to the hedge fund return index, the HFRI, you know, index. This product builds off of all the components of that index and then replicates to the best of its ability strategy that that fits mindset. So if you look over time, QAI uh, over and over again really sits fairly on the on the average performance of hedge funds in their category. In terms of where it fits in a portfolio, I mean, look, the bigger you know institutions, if you will, pride themselves on doing lots of due diligence and hiring you know hedge fund managers and private equity and early investing and all kinds of things that are that at the end investor, the retail investor. Uh, we really don't have access. So so there's a different conversation when you look at retail versus institutional when it comes to liquid oil. Um, they certainly serve a, a volatility dampening sort of leave. You know, the question is, what are you getting in terms of um, uncorrelated market return uh, above risk-free, right? And so what do you expect to get from that? You're, you know, your best performance, you know, might be, 50%, you know, greater than than some other strategy. If your worst might be 80% worse, you know, so, and that's where you see a lot of this, you, you see a lot of the, the outliers making a lot of noise in the, in the strategy. So, so a, for someone to implement a liquid alt strategy in their portfolio uh, over a long term, they're going to see some dampening. They'll have exposure to uncorrelated assets. Um, or uncorrelated strategies. Now, another another area of conversation that we've been kind of talking a lot about this year in 2020, especially, is in transition management. You know, with managers closing down, head funds closing, uh, lots of them this year, returning capital investors, other, you know, institutions doing searches for all strategies and all managers and head fund strategies while that process takes place, takes time. That's not an overnight um, search. You know, the, the search and the due diligence associated with the recommendations that are made to these institutions can take three months, six months, a year. So the question is, what are they doing with their CAC while they're sitting 
and doing those searches and the and and those challenges of of, of not being invested to AI in particular for, for those that are in the middle of the hedge fund searches. We say, well, maybe you don't use this as a core allocation. Maybe you do, but at a minimum, you might want to think about using this as a business because this is going to you know sit squarely in that on the fund. Um, strategic allocation, uh, and you can put because it's made up of so many liquid instruments. You can put a lot of money into a fund like that, like UAI, and have it done very efficiently, and sit on it as long as you need to, and get out on the same day that you want to get out. Get your, you know, so there's no lockup in ETFs, no penalties for getting out early or anything like that. So it, we see multiple uses for completion. We also see multiple uses for transition management. You know, yes, does that sort of answer um, a little bit? Like, that's that's where we're occupied right now. There, we have merger arb, another merger arb strategy, very popular strategy in our alt space. Thicker for that is MNA. I mean, I think it's just such an exciting part of. Obviously, with ETFs, you can really put almost anything inside of them. And it's just a segment of the market that's that's growing more. And, and as there are better tools out there, I mean, as you know, what we're trying to do at ETF Logic and with the Logically platform is show people how these 2300 ETFs fit in a portfolio. So that's why I'm curious to hear, you know, how, how are those alt products? What's your pitch to people? Because that's also informing me as portfolio and analytics provider well this is how people want to see these things right there's a core and satellite model if you're trying to build a portfolio but you know people also may want to include these products to you know dampening volatility or Mm -hmm. potentially enhancing income or enhancing yield in some way so those are all different views on products yeah, we with your platform in particular. I mean, this is again. I, I I hinted at it earlier. Asking questions before you pitch the solution is critically important. If we are in Q4. You know, we just entered Q4 in one of the craziest years any of us in our careers can ever remember in market and social and and scientific worlds. This has just been one heck of a year, and we're only three quarters of the way through it, and we're heading into an election cycle. I mean, this is, it, it really is. It's just like, wow, what else could happen? Eddie Van Halen died. I mean, this is awful, you know, like worst year ever. But at any rate, so when we, we look at, you have to ask, you say, well, what are you looking for? And a lot of people don't know how to search and how to make sense of all the products that are out there. So, okay, fine. There's 2,300 ETFs. They're not all S&P 500 and they're not all high yield. So there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of variations of, of product types within certain asset classes, tilts and liens, long, short, there's some with leverage. So, so you really want to find an easy source of information to help make sense. That's what platforms like ETF Logic provide to consumers and advisors and managers, right? So we've looked at what is coming up in the pipe for the year end. We're expecting more volatility. Um, you know, the market, without making a call of markets going up or down, just let's just say we expect them to be bouncing around a bit and be very headline sensitive. That being said, if you are invested in a high yield and you want to take some of that high yield volatility off the table, are there other high yield products out there 
that can help you achieve that. You would, I would assume in ETF logic in particular, type in high yield and see what's available. And then you can start to break down the different metrics of those ETFs. And by the way, again, if I'm leading, you know, it's on purpose. Notice that the first thing I'm not asking people to do, or I would never ask people to do, is search for ETFs by their volume or their assets. The first thing you should do is search for ETFs that are designed to give you what you want, what your client wants going into this uncertain time. You want to reduce volatility. You want to reduce drawdown. You maybe, you maybe have some cost sensitivities so the certain fee structures you want to see. These are the kinds of inputs you put in and then see what the best roster looks like. When you are drafting a team, we talked earlier, you know, fantasy football, you, you know, you can draft last year's players, but there's a lot of good rookies and up and comers coming up that have no data associated with them other than they look good, right? Well, we all, we all know how that works out, right? You're going to pick them up. ETFs are, are infinitely useful. And again, I, I can't stress enough, look under the hood first, find the ones that in a perfect world make the most sense for you. This looks like a diamond in the rough. This is a gem. This is exactly what I need. Then think about implementation. Then think about right, how am I going to trade? Is there a efficient secondary market in this product where I can efficiently get in and out of my clients without costing them too much money in trading costs. Work with your trading desk at the various platforms that you're associated with. After you've done your homework on some on a platform like ETF Logic, after you've done all that homework and you've come up with the, the perfect portfolio or the perfect product, then go and start asking your trading desk, hey, I'm looking at this fund. Can you can you do an inquiry and see you know how much I can get done on the best bid or the best offer um, or the last sale or whatever is important to you? Work with the ETF issuers capital markets. We have one. Every other issuer in the world has one. They're very qualified individuals who are there to you know to help you navigate what you don't know. And most of the time, that's the trading world. The trading world is what we know really well, and the capital market schemes at the issuers are designed to help you um, find comfort in that process. Again, it's important to do it in reverse. Look at the funds first, find the ones that make the most sense for you in that perfect world, and then try to find a reason not to trade. I can almost assure you that in 99% of the cases, you're going to find that you can actually trade, invest comfortably in and out of nearly all 2,300 Chris, that is such great advice. And in the over 100 demos that I've done with advisors, that's the exact issue that I see a lot of the times. You know, they immediately, when we're talking about ETF screening, they go and they say, you know, I only want to have funds that have certain volumes or, you know, over a certain threshold. And I always try to explain to them that that's not the case. And, you know, they're narrowing down the universe of ETFs that they can invest in to the point where it's not really beneficial for their end clients. There's a lot of great products out there that they can still get into, especially when you're talking about a long-term you know, investment horizon. So I really love that advice. Super helpful. Yeah. I mean, there's, look, I mean, there's, a, I, I'm willing to admit that, you know, that, that some of the bigger funds that most of us are, that are household names that trade a lot, they're commoditized. And they trade super frequently and they trade like water. And there's a, there's a use to that. But remember, 
these are passive index, you know, very low cost plain vanilla products in a sense. We use the words plain vanilla. So yeah, you could throw, you know, a whole lot at it and get a whole lot out of it and use it strategically. That's fine. But that's usually for liquidity management. And it's usually for, you know, maybe a hedge fund or a strategist needs to pull money out of the market very, very quickly. They may gravitate to those products just because there's, you know, there's a good use case for that. But in terms of building core allocations for longevity and really looking at the longer term objectives of your clients, you know, investment cycle, how long are they going to be in the products? What are they looking to get out of it? Well, how much risk do they want to have in terms of equity, fixed income, in terms of high yield investment grade, in terms of small cap and micro cap versus large cap growth value? All of these things are important and you really need to you know, figure out if you're going to be in there for two seconds, then fine, you know, use the most liquid, most accessible watered down product that you could find. That's There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're talking about building portfolio for your clients and, and a strategy for your clients that fits them specifically, fits their needs, fits the objectives, that's you're gonna you're probably gonna get a lot more bang for your buck by using other products that strip out a lot of the the noise that might be in the most popular products. Well, okay, so as we're getting in the final stretch here, what are the current trends that you're seeing? And then let's extrapolate that into the future. So where, you know, things that are happening, things that are moving right now, I know we've spoken about active non-transparence or ants. Yeah, I mean, with respect to active non-transparence, some of us have really moved to semi-transparent, really, because they're, they're really, none of them are really non-transparent, right? And so Again, we definitely see more of those products coming to market. We see early adaptation by a few of the issuers that have come to market. I think the challenge there is going to be performance. They're going to need to they're going to need to step up. Performance. What we've seen, um, one of them in particular, only out, but like one in particular that came out with really uh, launches has done exceptionally well versus benchmark. And as we see more and more of that, then I think. The investment community is going to find comfort in these products as new versions of ETFs, in a sense. This is new access to active managers who were previously only in mutual funds and, and other strategies. So the ETF wrapper is not going to magically give a manager some kind of a boost in performance. That's not what ETFs do. They might give them some technology, but... But, they're, but it's not going to automatically make a losing fund a winner. That being said, if there's a winning strategy out there that works uh, and they launch it in an ETF wrapper in a semi-transparent, active you know, way, there's no reason to think that they won't continue to be able to you know, provide that outperformance and provide that octane, if you will. Look, I think that the fixed income space is definitely poised for more attention Look, challenges in fixed income, obviously, with rates as low as they are, looking for opportunity, looking for yield, looking for the value of our invested, what's going to give the best return. So there is opportunity out there. And typically in active management, you know, active high yield managers, what they do for a living, they can recognize you know, when paper is discounted way more than other paper in its relative class uh, and, or if something is very expensive relative to, you know, other debt relative to your group. Active managers in the fixed income space are very good. At and I think that's where you're going to see uh, more opportunity 
the ETF issuer side. I think you're going to, with, with rates as low as they are, the, the you know, one would think the active fixed income managers are going to really start to shine because they can avoid um, picking up some of the stuff that you might not want to pick up in an index-based product. Um, what else is trending? You know, education continues to trend. Obviously, it's a huge part of our business. Um, constantly providing content, webinars, um, you know, pieces. I think we're going to continue to see that um, evolve. Um, and more issuers coming to market that hadn't been in the market before. Um, you know, there's there's big platforms that don't have products that are that are still in the process of coming to market. So don't be surprised to see new suites of product coming out, um, strategically positioned on major platforms. And uh, don't be surprised to see assets go that way because again, there's something to be said for brand familiarity. You know, like if you if you and your family and your you know um, colleagues have been invested with a particular family of managers for decades or generations, uh, and now they have an ETF, you might find it easy to just keep your money. And they don't have an ETF, well then, and you want to be an ETF, I go to another manager. So I think you'll you'll continue to see um, large managers come to market with products, um, so they have solutions for those clients that are looking. I mean, it totally makes sense. The landscape right now is very unique in terms of the situation we're in. We've seen a lot of ETF closures this year, almost 150, but we've also seen a lot of ETF launches, and it's something that we monitor given it's a part of the data that we feed into the platform. And I, I saw recently a lot of names that don't have ETF products that are now filing for them or launching them. So curious your viewpoint, uh, being an ETF issuer, do you think there's room to grow for everyone? Or do you think they're kind of entering an overcrowded marketplace? You know, I, I, no, I, well, look, I mean, there's definitely room to grow. There's still, there's still plenty of money on the table and, and there's still a, a seismic shift you know, into ETFs, you know, now will the largest issuers continue to get bigger? Yeah, probably. But I think their market share will continue to, you know, slivered away a little bit at a time as as other managers come to market and retain a piece of the pie. You know, look, I mean, there's, there's ESG. We didn't even talk about ESG. That's a huge new segment of the market in a sense, not new to the market, but certainly feels new for 2020 in ETFs. There's been you know, phenomenal growth in ESG ETF assets this year. That trend we expect to continue. You know, we think that investors and managers are pressured more and more to at least be able to talk ESG, at least to have a solution or two that fits certain mandates, be it impact investing or, or some sort of disruptive investing. That That's another trend that we're seeing. And, and there's certainly opportunity there for, for, you know, for managers to step up. Again, sifting through the you know sifting through all that information as an issuer um, is hard. We certainly, you know, if we're going to position our ESG ETFs into a client or a segment of the market, we want to know who we're positioning it against. And I don't magically have the answers to all of that information. I don't have a email that comes out every day and says this is this is what we did. This is what they did. I'm leaning on ETF Logic to build lists of ESG ETFs that are like ours and see how we stack up using the data. And I want to make sure that our portfolio managers know 
how we stack up and how we're stacking up, what the metrics look like. Because if we're asking people to do this homework, if you will, we're asking people to look under the hood and they see that, oh, we're ranked fifth out of, you know, 15, if that were the case, it's not the case. But if we were, you know, I want to know why aren't we number one? And how do I answer that question? Getting that data and getting access to that information is one of the things that, you know, that we as issuers uh, are constantly looking to, to obtain. And look, there are times when certain segments of the market, you know, underperform others where you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing, but you should at least know why, right? You know, you have to at least have that answer and that, you know, explanation as to, you know, what what were the contributors to uh, lack of performance or what were the contributors to the, the excess performance? You know, look at Tesla. Tesla, anyone that had Tesla had, you know, all kinds of uh, positive attribution in their fund that could easily be explained by saying, well, we, we were overweight Tesla. Great. But know that. You have to do a little homework to find that out sometimes. Cool. Anything else uh, you want to mention or add or like? I mean, look, if I had, you know, think about some of the things we talked about. I mean, again, I, I stress, you know, look at the macro big picture first. Put those macro big picture input into your searches, into your due diligence, and find you know the products that that make the most sense based on what they're designed to do. And the very last thing you should do is think about, all right, now can I trade this and invest in this and get my money out when I want to get it out and all of that? Because the answer is yes, you know, all of those things. But you need to know that yourself. You need to be convinced yourself. Do that. Go in reverse. And if there's something you don't like about a product because it doesn't have the right volume or the assets, I think that I've to rule out a product for those reasons, then you can go to the next one down the list and say, all right, well, cut off at 50 million now. Here's one that's got 75, but it, you know, so just do it that way. And I, I, I promise you, you're going to find opportunities you didn't even know were right under your nose the whole time. Great words of wisdom, I think. Very, very helpful advice for financial advisors when it comes down to improving their their ETF screening processes. Love it. Uh, you know, it's it's what we try to do here for advisors. That's the whole point of our Logically platform, right? So, Chris, really appreciate you coming on. I think great takeaways overall. And for advisors who want to set up another chat with you, what's the best way to reach you? Yeah, I mean, um, if if there's anything, you can hit us on our LinkedIn page. You can hit us on our home website. You know, I'm easily reachable at com. Happy to respond to any emails uh, inbound that want to jump on a call with myself or one of our PMs. Always happy to set that up. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Chris, for coming on. Uh, for the listeners, again, if you guys have not claimed your Logically free trial yet, you can go ahead and go to our website, Go to logically, L-O-G-I-C-L-Y dot finance slash free trial. There will be instructions as well as the sign-up code for you to go ahead and access that free trial and check out the Logically platform for yourself. And again, thank you guys for listening to the Speaking Logically podcast. If you're listening uh, on a streaming platform or our website, also wanted to let you know that all episodes are now available via our YouTube channel. So again, you could just search Logically or Speaking Logically on YouTube to find all of the videos of previous episodes and upcoming episodes, as well as some other great video content that we've produced on that channel. Thanks again. 
Cool. Well, thanks, thanks, Chris. Chris. All right. Thank you.